You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Finbar Birmingham, the Europe correspondent at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. It's been a crazy kind of week here in the city, even by Hong Kong standards. It started with 47 former opposition lawmakers and activists charged with conspiring to subvert state power under Hong Kong's national security law over their roles in an unofficial primary runoff election that authorities linked to a plot to overthrow the government. These marathon hearings have dominated the news cycle all week. We saw the city's first large-scale protest really since the national security law came in last summer, right outside the West Kowloon Magistrates Court with dramatic scenes beamed around the world. In the second half of the show today, I will be joined by a very special guest to discuss these events and how they're being received in Europe. Reinhard Budakofer is perhaps the most vocal European official on China. A long-time MEP, the head of the European Parliament's delegation to China, he tells us what the EU could, and perhaps more importantly, what he thinks it should do in response to the ongoing crackdown here in Hong Kong. These events will of course have been watched closely by Beijing, where the National People's Congress kicked off today. This is the single most important event in the Chinese political calendar. And addressing the MPC today, Premier Li Keqiang vowed to push through electoral reforms in Hong Kong, a move which will no doubt garner criticism from democracy advocates and rivals internationally. Chinese government also announced key economic targets and plans to send their tech and defense spending into another stratosphere. John Carter and Joe Shin, our political economy editors, are coming in hot from a live blog they've been helping out with all day, and they're going to furnish us with all the details as well as the usual, as well as the usual sharp analysis in part one. Loads to discuss. Let's get on with the show. Friday afternoon, and I'm joined by our political economy editors, John Carter and Joe Shin, who are coming in hot, having spent the day following very closely the first day of the National People's Congress, which kicked off in Beijing this morning. Um, a lot to get through here, gentlemen. Uh, we'll talk first about the the Hong Kong issues that came up. Um, we've reported our Hong Kong desk that there will be widespread electoral reform, there'll be postponement of elections, um, while in Li Keqing's speech address, Addressing the Congress, uh, he made it clear that it was a priority to uh, make sure there were no foreign foreign forces interfering in Hong Kong. And he also alluded to the electoral reform, although officially he has yet to confirm our reporting. The European Union, the United States have warned uh, Beijing and Hong Kong that if they go down this route, that they will be punished. There will be some sort of action taken. And I wonder whether um, you think that uh, the fact that they're just going ahead with this suggests they're not really concerned about um, what the reaction might be overseas or they don't really worry about the the actions that the that, that these uh, that, 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 that rivals could possibly take. Well, I think I can make make a start on it. Uh, first of all, as you just mentioned, you know, uh, the Heritage Foundation has dropped uh, Hong Kong from the economic freedom list. And I think last year, Hong Kong was number one or number two, right? Uh, and this year, it is no longer being even qualified to be in the list. So this is quite uh, uh, interesting. But from my perspective, I think, uh, you know, let's put aside all these uh, crackdown on pro-democracy camp as a, as a, as a, as a efforts to change the electoral system. And, you know, the um, 
the curbing of this uh, civil society freedoms. And these are things that are all true. But but uh, on the other hand, I think China very much want to keep Hong Kong as independent uh, in terms of trade and finance and uh, an economy. So it's really uh, not fair to say that you know Hong Kong has surrendered all its uh, economic decision making to to Beijing. For instance, if for anyone, if you uh, travel across Shenzhen and Hong Kong, you will find, you know, still two different uh, economies. You know, the, the currency is different. You know, the system is different. Uh, the banking service, you know, the, fa- the financial market. So, um, so in the in the foreseeable future, I think this is a this is a part that the Chinese government will try very hard to protect. Which means, uh, you know, Hong Kong as international. Uh, financial and uh, trading center. And mm. in fact, this is also included in the 14th five-year plan and uh, the 2035 vision. Now, now let's, let me read this. It say, say China will uh, support Hong Kong to um, enhance its position as international finance, shipping, trade, and aviation center. Uh, we'll try to enhance its role as an um, offshore yuan center for the global markets and also our international center for asset management and risk management. So in addition, it wants to uh, Hong Kong to play a role in kind of facilitating uh, um, technology exchange and also uh, an arbitrage sen- setting and intellectual uh, property protection. So, so, you know, these, of course, are, 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 you can say this is, a, this is a kind of propaganda from Beijing, but I think if it is in, including these lines into the 14th five-year plan, it's issued to every uh, local government department, to every company, and to every individual to see. And I think we have to take a little bit seriously that, that you know, the Chinese government is not going to, uh, you know, take back all this uh, economic mm-hmm. autonomy of Hong Kong. That's all well and good that Beijing is saying this, but surely economic freedom and personal freedoms are, you know, quite complementary. Um, you know, I, I know uh, a lot of um, people who work here in certain industries are very concerned by, for instance, the national security laws in, uh, effect on data accessing. So, like, for instance, if you're a forensic investigator in Hong Kong, you're, you're worried these days about whether you can take data cross-border, um, you know, if you've got international teachers who are perhaps concerned about having to swear allegiance to, um, you know, the the government or you know to to, to sign oaths um, to say that they are um, you know loyal to to Beijing or loyal to to the Hong Kong government. I mean, I get what you say. I mean, Hong Kong will perhaps remain an international finance and an international trade hub, but I don't think that that is necessarily equitable with economic freedom. Actually, you know, to take it off the the listing altogether, I think is kind of ridiculous. I mean, but I think that the Hong Kong government has has always used this heritage foundation ranking of Hong Kong as as, as number one in the world of freedom as as a sort of uh, a bit of a you know a PR uh, PR boost. Um, so it's certainly big news, John. Where where do you stand on this debate? Beijing is making a, a economic calculation. Um, it sees the large. Uh, uh, investment inflows into China now uh, from a, a lot of it from Europe, a lot of it from America. It sees the number of companies lining up to do business in China. Uh, it sees the Wall Street firms opening new businesses in China. And it's not overly worried about criticism of its handling of Hong Kong. It believes that the world will come to it because it is the world's largest domestic market. I mean, this is the whole point behind dual circulation is that the external environment was getting 
more difficult. And so China is going to rely more on domestic demand and do domestic uh, factors of production to weather the storm. Um, and it believes that, you know, as it continues to develop, as the middle class continues to grow, that Western companies and therefore Western political leaders will have no choice but to d deal with it and to continue to come to China. Whether that will actually take place in, in reality, I know we do have growing criticism of China's human rights record. We have the Canadian Parliament and the Dutch Parliament uh, labeling it genocide. Um, the, the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang genocide. So how far is this going to go? Will there be a boycott of the the Winter Olympics in 2022? Uh, you don't know. But so far, Beijing, I think, is making a calculation based on the, the world can't live without us. And so mm -hmm. we're going to do what we think is best for us. Yeah, and there's a sense, I guess, that whatever economic coercion uh, tariffs, sanctions may be used in response to uh, Xinjiang or in response to Hong Kong, Joshin, is there a sense uh, in Beijing that they can absorb these, that the Chinese economy is now strong enough to sort of withhold any such sanctions? Well, I think you're right. I think this is a part of the calculation. And also, more importantly, I think, but I think, you know, for the last 40 years, Hong Kong has been in a very unique position. You know, when China and the, and the world is getting along with and, and, and Hong Kong, places like Hong Kong can take advantage of both sides, you know, uh, for, the, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the Western world, for the U.S., for the international capitalists, you know, this is, a, this is one of the financial center, you know, this have the law system that we recognize. And for, for China, you know, it's just uh, it culturally, you know, it's close to, to, to mainland and culturally it's part of always part of China. So, so Hong Kong can take advantage of both sides. And now this is a big conflict, right? This is a big rivalry between the two systems. And now Hong Kong will, will bear the brunt of, <laughs> will pay the price for that kind of uh, a conflict. And also what you just said is very interesting. You know, people are always talking like Hong Kong is a free society, free economy, and you know, it has been always uh, in, in the case. But if you really look at its uh, economic trajectory in the last 20 or 30 years and compared to the mainland China, I really don't see like where the freedom is. I mean, what I see is a huge wealth gap. You know, if you, if you were born into a property tycoon family and possibly your in Hong Kong and then your life will be like set, you know, you're possibly inherit your family business. And then if you are you're a poor, poor kid Boeing uh, uh, in a new territory and possibly your future is locked as well. You know, you can, the best is that you can, you know, if you're really smart, you can be a doctor, you can be a, a banker, you can be a, a lawyer and wearing the so-called, you know, the, 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 the golden handcuff, you know. But if you look at China, you know, it seems like opening, um, Unimaginable, unimaginable possibilities for the young people in the last 20 or 30 years. Let's, you know, talk about Jack Ma. You know, Jack Ma had nothing. And he created one of the most powerful uh, business empires in, in, in the world. We look at Kuaishou, you know, the, the founder of uh, Suhua, born in 1982, I think, from a village that's only... Uh, uh, electric appliance is a, is a, is a torch, is a flashlight. And we look at Zhang Yiming, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a poor student only like 15 years ago, but now he was, uh, his, his business with IPOs can be valued of one trillion uh, US dollars. And these are, of course, you can say these are the, the top of the top we cannot compare, but even like normal person, you know, if you were born in 1990, you know, which city will you prefer in Shenzhen or in, in Hong Kong? I think for any person, the, economic opportunities in the in the north side would be much bigger than you know could possibly in Hong Kong. So 
so it's it's kind of a debatable debatable thing, you know, whether economic freedom. If the economic freedom, of course, is for a big private tycoon to do whatever he wants, you know, Hong Kong is truly the heaven for the rich people. But if you want to be, you know, for more of the the, the general public, maybe mm-hmm. you know the answer should be different. Sure. I mean, I was talking about general personal freedom rather than general personal economic freedom. But I I mean, I totally agree with you that Hong Kong is a very unequal place. And, you know, uh, certainly the the, the few that do have economic freedom are are dominating here. Um, We move on to the uh, details of the work report. So what have we seen today um, in terms of the economy? And any surprises, John? What, What are the main highlights that you would outline for the listener? Well, the China did set a growth target for this year of above 6%. And to some people, that was a surprise. They didn't expect there to be a growth target at all. There were elements of the uh, uh, Beijing policy advisor circles that argued that uh, the, they should do away with growth targets because uh, it it focused attention in the wrong way. It created uh, expectations in the local governments that they had to do certain things and take a lot, on a lot of debt to do them. And that the uh, gov- government and the country as a whole should focus more on the quality of growth rather than the quantity of growth. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Beijing did decide to set a target of above 6%, uh, which is low compared to expectations of what growth will be like this year. I mean, most every forecaster is projecting growth this year in China of over 8%. IMF is 8.1%. And so this gives... Uh, Beijing uh, some extra leeway in order to meet other policy goals that it wants to do, like uh, cutting back on on debt and financial risks. Uh, also, uh, Beijing advisors are saying, look, uh, because of the very low base in comparison from last year, and remember that the economy contracted 6.8% in the first quarter last year, uh, the growth numbers this year are going to be high, skewed to the high side. Um, But that's not the sustainable growth level of the Chinese economy. It's more likely 6%. And 6%, as you recall, was the growth rate at the end of 2019 before COVID. And so they're saying, look, we needed to send the message that the quarterly growth rate, uh, as opposed to the annual growth rate, is probably sustainably around 6%. And that's what we message we wanted to send. In addition, when we layer on efforts to control debt. We reduced the fiscal stimulus a little bit. Um, We're trying to move away from the stimulus that we had last year to combat COVID. These are all things that are going to depress growth a bit. And so 6% gives us more leeway. So away from the hard economic targets, um, Joe Shin, is there anything in the in the report, like in terms of that, that, you know, we can look to to see what will China's strategy be over the coming year or further beyond? Oh, yes, Fingba. Uh, for today, uh, actually today, we, we, we have seen uh, many documents other than the uh, government work report. The government work report is an annual thing. It's just for 2021. But I think the most important of all is, uh, is the 14th five-year plan and 2035 vision. Uh, it's uh, contained more than 100 pages and basically covers everything that China has envisioned for itself in the future in the next five years and also the policy guidelines. And there are two things that really stands out. One is about uh, the focus on uh, technology and uh, advanced manufacturing. It seems, you know, uh, Fima, we have talked about this many times before, you know, uh, about um, how the Made in China 2025 has 
about pissed off uh, Washington, the Brussels, so, you know, it's too nationalistic. But, you know, according to China's uh, today's plan, it's, uh, it's, it's a still kind of made in China 2025, just without its name. You know, and, and it's specifically listed very detailed uh, industries and a very detailed projects that Beijing want to make a breakthrough. And this is almost a guidance for the investors if you want to really invest into China. You, know, you, know, you can see like where Beijing will likely to put its focus on, where the money will go, where the uh, preferential policies will go. So um, technology and uh, advanced manufacturing. And the second point is about uh, environment. You know, this is a this is a really a, a, a sea change in terms of Chinese policy. Only a few years ago, you know, the the, the, the mindset in Beijing is like, oh, so global warming is caused by developed countries, is by the rich countries, and this kind of carbon neutrality thing is almost a, a plot, try to trap us in. You know, they they are trying to contain our development. But yeah. now the, the, this mindset has completely changed. You know, China has to you know, be a leader in, in, in countering this climate change. So China has raised its target of uh, carbon neutrality by 2060 and also, um, you know, reached the peak by 2030, the, the carbon emissions. So this will translate a lot of interesting and, and significant uh, kind of policy changes and uh, uh, readjustment on the ground. So in this area, I see, uh, you know, Beijing has, Beijing still don't know exactly what to do. For instance, even even measuring emission is still still a, a debatable problem in, in the Chinese government. Because when she said, you know, we have to cut it by thirty five uh, by uh, by twenty thirty, and like from what base, you know, on on that year, maybe on twenty on two thousand five, China doesn't have any statistics about its mm-hmm. uh, emission, or at least not very reliable statistics. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. There are lots of work to be done, but at least you can see the seriousness of Beijing in tackling this problem. So this is a, this is a, a, an area that is really worth watching. Sure. It will be around the world, um, the EU Green Deal. Um, don't know if the US will get their Green Deal done, but certainly China will be one of the leading areas to focus on. Um, John, before we finish up, what's on your agenda for the year ahead? Anything interesting? The year ahead or the week ahead? Okay. <laughs> well, the, week, the week ahead would be fine. Yeah, no, I can't, I can't look more than a week ahead. It's too busy. Um, okay, so on Sunday we get... Um, new trade data for January and February combined because of the Lunar New Year. It's likely to be extremely strong because of, again, the low base in January and February of last year. So we could have uh, export growth above 40%, for instance. Um, so we'll see. It would be very difficult to interpret the data compared to uh, December, for instance, until we see more. Also on Sunday, we get the um, Wang Yi, the uh, foreign minister, has a press conference, so we'll get some more uh, information about uh, the outlook for Chinese uh, 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 diplomacy in the coming year. Uh, and uh, uh, next week, uh, the two sessions will end, uh, and we'll have uh, Li Keqiang, the premier, will hold a press conference, which always is the at, at the end of the two sessions. And he will answer questions and we'll get some more information about how the government feels about the year ahead and the five-year plan and the outlook for doubling growth by 2035, which, by the way, the documents handed out today did not repeat. Remember back in November, yeah, uh, Xi Jinping said that it's quite possible that we could double the size of the economy again by 2035. That 
promise was not repeated in the documents today. Well, look, guys, that has been fantastic. Thanks for that comprehensive rundown of what we're seeing out of Beijing today. Uh, We will reconvene next week. Until then, stay safe. Have a good week. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Anyone with a passing interest in the Europe-China relationship will be familiar with the name Reinhard Budikofer. On Twitter, he goes by at Booty, and he really is one of the loudest and most intelligent voices on China in Europe today. We got him on the show to find out what the European Union may be thinking with regard to the crackdown in Hong Kong this week and the wider EU-China relationship. He sits on a number of very important committees in the European Parliament, and unlike some of the more vocal critics of China in Europe, he's incredibly well informed. And that's why we're delighted to have him on the show this week. You've probably seen snippets of his quotes pop up in the media around the world as the Europe-China relationship grows more important, but we're delighted to have had him on the line for an in-depth discussion. Listen in. I'm joined today by Reinhard Budekofer, who is a German MEP representing the Green Party in the European Parliament. He's also the chair of the Parliamentary Delegation for Relations with the People's Republic of China. He's a member of the Foreign Affairs International Trade Committee, among others. And Mr. Budekofer, welcome to the show. Most people who follow EU-China relations will be very familiar with you, so it's great to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. We wanted to ask you first all about the first of all about the situation in Hong Kong, um, not necessarily about the situation itself, but how is it being viewed in Europe, particularly among parliamentarians? Uh, last week we saw the EU High Representative Joseph Borrell um, say after the Foreign Affairs Council that if the situation deteriorated, that the EU would look more closely at what action it could possibly take. I'm wondering what are you expecting from the European Union in light of what we've seen in Hong Kong this week. Well, unfortunately, we uh, cannot get around the fact that the situation is deteriorating as we speak, and it will continue to deteriorate. My analysis of the situation in Hong Kong says that um, the decision makers um, that decide the fate of Hong Kong, and that's certainly not Carrie Lam, Maybe that's uh, Xiaobao Long, but uh, I think it's it's even more higher up where the real decisions are being taken. But those decision makers have uh, passed judgment on Hong Kong and they have come to the conclusion that they want to fully eradicate any independent political stances or at least the opportunity for anybody to relevantly express critical political stances in the public in Hong Kong. And that includes um, abolishing any opportunity for competitive political elections. Uh, And uh, this is going far beyond what uh, Beijing announced a year 
almost not quite a year ago when at the uh, uh, NPC meeting, uh, the uh, national security law was uh, passed. Then uh, the, the propaganda line was, well, this is just targeting very few, very radical, even terrorist, exceptionally terrorist uh, individuals. We now see that this is not the case, that this is uh, having a broad impact. We're expecting uh, a broad uh, disqualification movement against uh, district councillors. Uh, we're expecting a change of the electoral laws. So I believe that the worst that we expected one year ago has been outdone. Reality mm. turns out to be more dire than our nightmares expected. Mm. And so what can the European Union and what do you expect the European Union to do in response to this? Because it's, it's currently sticking to the conclusions that it produced last summer about sort of working with civil groups and maybe some export controls and some student exchanges or more, more opportunities for Hong Kong students. Uh, are there other tools that the European Union is expected to or could use, Mr. Budukova? Yes, indeed, there are, and they have been pointed out by uh, the European Parliament. And uh, just recently, a couple of colleagues again uh, reminded the HRVP, Mr. Borrell, um, of those proposals. And, and we told him that we expect of him to evaluate our proposals also and not just work around what the Parliament has done. So, what sorts one, of proposals? Yeah. One, yeah, I was just about to, to, to give you a couple of examples. One um, necessary step would be to use the um, newly created global human rights sanctions regime that the EU put in place in December. Uh, it's now been um, put to use for the first time with respect to the Navalny case in, in Russia. But my simple question is, if we muster the courage to apply that mechanism um, against the atrocities uh, that are being reported from Russia, why would we refrain from also applying uh, the same kind of mechanism uh, to the cases of Xinjiang and Hong Kong? And I, I think uh, the, the European Union should come to the conclusion that such um, sanctions, individualized sanctions, should be put in place, for instance, against uh, Chen Quanguo from Xinjiang and against Xiao Baolong, uh, the, the um, um, man who runs Hong Kong for Beijing. That would be one, one uh, step. Uh, I also uh, think that we should... Uh, um, form what we have proposed, a, a contact group of international partners that care for the fate of Hong Kong, for the future of Hong Kong, and that continuously work uh, with um, uh, the, the international media and work in international organizations to raise Hong Kong time and time again. Uh, I would... Uh, I, I would say that, that Beijing is calculating that if they put one uh, incredible 
incredibly oppressive step on top of the former, uh, they, they tend to they they will succeed in shifting uh, the, the the conversation. So what we were enraged about uh, two months ago is already forgotten. Now we're enraged about uh, what happens today, or if uh, if people like Martin Lee will be will be put in jail, we will be enraged for a week, and 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 then they come with another atrocity, and so we have to. Um, um, this this incrementalism of oppression has to be countered with a strategy of incrementalism of criticism. Mm. And that has to be organized in all international fora. And, and this would also be a, an important uh, an important step, I think. Sure. I wanted to ask you, Mr. Bodokofer, about the potential to work with the United States. And I know that you um, you have been vocal about the need for transatlantic cooperation towards China in general. On Hong Kong last year, we saw the Donald Trump administration perhaps use some of its Trump cards, no pun intended, very early on uh, with the removal of Hong Kong's autonomy, um, with the declaration that goods made in China, Hong Kong had to be relabeled as made in China. Um so I'm wondering, do you see anywhere where the United States and the European Union could perhaps collaborate in terms of their actions and their, their policies towards Hong Kong? I do think that uh, the uh, new Biden administration has demonstrated by now that uh, they are not intending to go soft on China, to relent from uh, uh, the uh, pressure that the previous administration um, uh, tried to put on China um, over both Hong Kong and Xinjiang and uh, many other issues, including the South China Sea. And this is um, also uh, guaranteed to some degree because of um, where Congress stands. I mean, a liberal Democrat and a conservative Republican can't agree on almost anything, but they do agree on uh, human rights. They do agree on uh, defending the liberties of Hong Kong. They do agree on pushing back against uh, the totalitarian regime of Xi Jinping in Xinjiang. Uh, so um, there, I think, is a, a very good basis, and we are cooperating. We're cooperating directly between members of Congress and members of the European Parliament. We're cooperating within the International Parliamentary Alliance on, on China. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a basis, uh, and uh, uh, there it is in, in the mutual interest of the U.S. and the EU and many other like-minded partners to work together and not to, to uh, allow China to, to pick and choose and to target individual countries over the stances they take. So, so we, we we're learning from the experience that, that Australia has, that Sweden has, that the Czech Republic has, that uh, democracies should have each other's back vis-a-vis -vis China. And, and I think this should be organized and it will. Sure, sure. I know you've been very active on that IPAC front, which is an interesting movement to see sweeping Europe and the Western parliaments, Japan as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about the broader um, EU-China relationship. You are a German MEP. Um, you know, the German government was very 
um, very involved, let's say, in the, um, the, the, the finalization of the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. This is the EU-China investment deal that was signed on December 30th, the last day of the German presidency of the Commission. What is your sense, um, Mr. Budokofer, um, about the appetite for this deal in Germany? Because um, obviously Germany is the most trade-exposed European nation to um, China. The uh, German car industry, one million jobs are uh, dependent on China. And obviously you, as parliamentarians, have been very vocally critical of this. Is there a sort of, do you feel like there is widespread opposition or is the debate a bit more nuanced than maybe we, we would expect? Well, there was... Um an initial wave of attention when the deal was struck and during the first days of January, that has receded a bit and, and there will be a new surge of interest, I would say, once it's possible to analyze all the economic implications. So far, the annexes to the deal that give you detail on how much market access would really be in the cards have still not been published. So, so we're still everybody's still waiting. Yes. But if you if you look at the initial responses from the German business community, I would say that was lukewarm at best. Um, there were a couple of. Uh, Voices from big corporations. You mentioned the automotive sectors. Um, Volkswagen is happy about the deal, even though I don't really understand why they would think that putting even more eggs into the Chinese basket is a good strategy. <laughs> but well, that's that's them. And uh, uh, BASF was also positive. The chemical company. Sure, sure. But if you look at the the German Federation of Industry, there were. Uh, very uh, um, timid in, in, or, well, reluctant to not praising the deal a lot. And, and internally, there, uh, people have been very critical, saying this is not what industry really wanted. We don't get access to uh, public procurement. We don't get uh, competitive neutrality. We don't um, succeed in implementing the principle of reciprocity. We don't have invest, uh, unified um, Europe-wide investment protection for investors in China. So, so there are so many, so many elements lacking, uh, and some of the concessions that China seems to be offering are uh, qualified, come with strings attached, um, are contradicted by other measures that the Chinese government is putting in place. Uh, so it's 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 hard to be enthusiastic ab about the deal, and. Um, I uh, sense a whole lot of support for the position that many in the European Parliament are taking now, where we're saying, look, um, as this deal is so weak, not, not even starting to talk about forced labor in Xinjiang and that it doesn't do anything about it. Just uh, mm -hmm. uh, looking at it from a business perspective, it's so weak that we should insist on having a couple of autonomous European measures in place before we even consider discussing ratification. Yeah. So uh, the European Commission has, for instance, been working on a so-called international procurement instrument 
that would introduce the principle of reciprocity to the procurement markets. We believe this should be in place before we even discuss uh, ratification of CAI and a couple of other measures like banning the import of products of forced labor to the European market. Sure. And this is an interesting point because since the agreement was announced, I think that the commission has accepted that it needs to broaden its toolbox. It's been speaking a lot about this supply chain due diligence tool, which would ostensibly rid the market of forced labor goods. Uh, I wonder, do you feel like these sorts of legislation will be enough uh, if they come into place, then Parliament maybe will fall in behind the investment deal with China. Or has the water been so soured that maybe people just don't want to touch it at all? Well, it's um, it's probably one year off. And, and a lot of water will flow yeah. down the Rhine or the, uh, the Thames or whatever river you, you have in mind. Um, and it, it's it's hard to make predictions, particularly when they concern the future. Uh, but I would uh, be ready to say um, there is a very stiff opposition inside the European Parliament, uh, particularly with regard to labor protection issues. And uh, China has not ratified four core conventions of the ILO, the International Labor mm-hmm. Organization. And uh, without, well, some people say uh, they must ratify the conventions against forced labor. Some people say they might must make real steps, which sounds uh, a bit more vague and, and is a bit more vague, but still demands more than just uh, a mouthful of hot air. It, it, yes. it, it means action. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so without that, I, I don't see how... Uh, how the deal could get a majority in the European Parliament. And it wouldn't be the first uh, trade-related deal that the European Parliament has rejected. Yeah. No, I was a a junior reporter in London covering CETA back in the day and the TTIP negotiations, so I remember these things fondly. Um, But can I ask you to finish up? Uh, We've seen various movements uh, over the past week suggesting that in you know, my home country of Ireland, um, there's been a bit of a backlash against China in Lithuania. Yesterday, we saw an announcement that the um, the government there is going to establish a trade office in Taiwan. Um, do you see across the European member states, European Union member states, a sort of uniform um, deterioration in relations with China, perhaps with the exception of a number of, of special examples. Um, but is this the lowest point that you can remember, um, Mr. Budokofer, in your time in the European Parliament in terms of relations towards China? I would indeed say this is the case. Yeah, uh, I've been uh, working on China issues in the European Parliament for now more than um, than 10 years. And uh, there's never been such a high level of um, uniform criticism, uh, and that uh, goes across party lines. You have uh, the conservatives, the Christian Democrats, social Democrats, liberals, Greens, even some from the left, uh, supporting uh, that that kind of criticism. Um, and also in the member states, with the uh, sole exception of Hungary, uh, the uh, the public opinion is deteriorating fast. And uh, 
I mean, there have been warning voices from Beijing, from, from think tank, the think tank world in Beijing, uh, telling the, the wolf warriors in, in, in the foreign uh, ministry that, that, that they're shooting themselves in the foot. But yes. obviously, obviously uh, they're, not willing to, they're not willing to listen. Uh, they, they are becoming so arrogant that they don't think they have to listen. Uh, but nobody can uh, operate successfully uh, without listening to the concerns that others have. And um, I mean, to to go to a point where where Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, for instance, when he visited Germany last year, uh, where he strongly and aggressively criticized our EU partner, the Czech Republic, from German soil. I mean, how could he ever expect that this would not create a backlash? Yes. How, yeah. how, can, they, how can they tell uh, the, the Swedish Minister of Culture, um, that was the, the Swedish ambassador to, to um, uh, Sweden, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Sweden, Mr. Tsui, uh, how can they tell the, the Swedish Minister of Culture that she is not um, allowed to um, give a, a, a certain honor to Tsui Min Hai, who is a Swedish citizen, but mm-hmm. who is languishing in Chinese jail? And after she still insisted on giving him this honor, uh, she was uh, told that she would not be welcome to China anymore. I mean, this kind of big power arrogance, where, where China seems to be saying, look, we're a big country, you're a small country, you do as you're told. This yeah. is something that runs against the grain of what the European Union stands for. The European Union is a project where small countries, in comparison, all European countries are small. You know this uh, this quip from one of the founders of the European Union. He said once, and that was in the 50s, there are just two kinds of countries in Europe, small countries and countries that do not yet know they're small. Today, we all know we're small <laughs> in comparison to China, for instance. So we are sticking together in order to uphold our values and to defend our interests. And if China thinks they can play divide and conquer, they're they're shooting themselves in the foot, and that's what they're doing. Sure. Well, look, that has been absolutely fascinating. Um, Mr. Budikofer, thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing your very valuable insights, and we hope to have you back on the show sometime soon. Would be pleased to do so. Take care, and um, all the best, and stay negative. Thanks for listening to this week's China Geopolitics podcast. I've been Finbar Birmingham at the SCMP. You've listened to John Carter, Joe Shin, and last but not least, Reinhard Budakover. Great to have him on here. We hope to have him back again. We'll be back this time next week to discuss more of the fallout from the NPC in Beijing, as well as what's going on in Hong Kong. Until then, keep up to date with all the news at scmp.com, on Twitter at SCMP Economy, I'm at F Birmingham. We'll see you next week. Keep your we'll see you next week. Stay safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask. You know the drill by now. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com where you can hear more about technology, 
trade, culture, and society.